Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that as we look at uh, this part of it in Ecclesiastes, that you would give us understanding and that your spirit will continue his good work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, ancient life was governed by the rhythms of the earth, uh, the seasons, their coming and their going, uh, and all the cycles that were associated with it. Archaeologists many, many years ago now found uh, in Palestine a little tablet uh, on a piece of clay and scratched on it are some ancient words and it dates from the 10th century BC. And these words may or may not be Hebrew. They they either are Hebrew or a language very similar to them. And on this little piece of pottery is what seems to be the practice uh, lines of a scribe. And he practices something about his calendar, the rhythms of the earth, the coming and going of the seasons. This is what the calendar says. Two months gathering. Two months sowing. Two months late sowing. A month cutting flax. A month harvesting barley. A month harvesting and finishing two months pruning, a month 
summer fruit. Now, there's a really beautiful simplicity to this that just tells us about what life was like for ancient people. And I think that kind of thing is a little bit lost on us uh, living in our world today. Um, This little calendar, it describes what does happen in certain months of the year and therefore what should happen in those months of the year. It's descriptive and prescriptive. Our modern life today, though, operates, for most of us anyway, and especially here in the heart of a massive metropolis like Sydney, it beats to a different drum. We have very different rhythms uh, that our year adheres to. Uh, We don't necessarily think about planting and harvesting. Uh, We think about getting to class, catching the train. We think about a time for New Testament, a time for Old Testament, a time for doctrine, a time for M&M, a time for Hebrew, or dare I say it, a time for not, no Hebrew. <laughs> well, in this particular section of Ecclesiastes, the author, Kohelet, picks up similar ideas. Uh, now, I'm calling our author Kohelet because that's the, the name that is used uh, within the Hebrew text itself. The word that is often translated in our Bibles as the teacher or the preacher. Uh, in Hebrew, that word is Kohelet. Uh, and I'm using it as his, as his name. Here in this particular section, he has this poem. It's a very beautiful poem, and it's got a particular rhythm to it. He describes what is done, but unlike that little calendar from the ancient world, I don't think he's describing what should be done. In other words, he's being descriptive, but not necessarily prescriptive. As we'll see, Kohelet is talking about the experiences that we have as individuals in life, but he's also got in mind something of the historical experience of the nation of Israel. Well, let's firstly focus on Kohelet himself, just to uh, give us a little bit of background. For those who happened to be in chapel, men's chapel last year, you, you got a little bit of this, but for the sake of getting everyone on the same page, uh, let's just uh, put in place some background info. Who is Kohelet? Well, a lot of people see the author of Ecclesiastes as Solomon, um, but I don't think it is. Kohelet is certainly a Davidic descendant. He describes himself as a son of David. Uh, But there are elements to what he says throughout the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes that seem to pick up on the experience of Israel down through the centuries well after Solomon. And so I don't think for that reason that it actually is Solomon. Nor do I think, as many people do, that he puts on the persona of a king or the persona of Solomon just for the sake of the first few chapters as he conducts this kind of royal experiment. No, I actually think there's a bit more to it than that. If he calls himself a son of David in the very title of the book, then I think it must be important for the whole book, not just for the first couple of chapters. And so I think Kohelet actually is a Davidic descendant He actually does belong to that line, that royal line of David, but he's living at a time much later than the kings of Israel. He's living at a time after the exile. 
after the people of God have experienced the downfall of the Davidic kingdom and their exile to Babylon. And he's living at a time when they've come back to the land, they've attempted to re-establish their nation, tried to bring about the promises of restoration that God had made, and yet there was still no Davidic king. Kohelet, as a Davidic descendant, should, by virtue of God's promises to his people, be ruling them as a Davidic king. But instead, he is a subject of a foreign king. And later in the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about what to do when, you're, when you actually can't change the mind of a king and how, how frightening it is to deal with a king who can do whatever he wants. And that's not him. That's someone else sitting on a throne in another country. And so Kohelet, who by rights of his heritage should be ruling the people of God as the Davidic king, is himself, along with them, subject to another king. And he lives in a situation where God's promises, these these grand promises of restoration, just seem to not have happened. God's purposes remain unfulfilled. Now, let's have a look at uh, the particular passage here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This poem is perhaps one of the most famous, if not the most famous, bit of Ecclesiastes. And according to one particular commentator, Warren W. Wearsby, the WWW of the biblical world, this is what he says about the poem. The inference is plain. If we cooperate with God's timing, life will not be meaningless. Everything will be beautiful in its time, even the most difficult experiences of life. I'm afraid I have to disagree with Warren. I think it's actually painfully simplistic and it actually trivialises the hardships and struggles that some people go through in order to call them beautiful. Now, yes, Kohelet does call them beautiful uh, in this particular passage, but I think he's calling that from God's point of view rather than from a human perspective. I don't think you could ever say to someone who has gone through massive trauma in their life, through someone who has perhaps experienced abuse, or perhaps a couple who have lost their newborn child, I don't think you can say to them, what you are going through is beautiful. That, I think, is almost obscene. So what's Kohelet getting at here? Well, if we have a look at these pairs of activities that he uh, discusses, I think we start to get an idea of what he's actually doing. The, the very first pair of activities that he mentions in the poem are pretty much beyond human control. No one controls the timing of their own birth. And most people don't control the timing of their own death. I think it's nonsensical to talk about con- uh, cooperating with God in these actions to somehow give them beautiful meaning. We're not in control. 
And also the view of um, that view of the poem that you know if you cooperate with God everything is nice. I think it actually goes completely against Kohelet's motto that he keeps stating throughout the entire book. He starts it, he starts the book with it, and he ends his monologue with it, and it punctuates his entire monologue. Everything is meaningless. Kohelet begins and ends his dialogue with those words. I mean, look at the verses immediately before this poem at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than to eat, drink and enjoy his work. But actually, in all the work that he did in chapters 1 and 2, he found no satisfaction at all. So even if you do find satisfaction, well, you die and you lose it all anyway. I've seen that even this is from God's hand, he says, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? But that's a kind of, well, gee, thanks, God. Thanks for maybe giving me the possibility of enjoying a bit of life. But, hey, you take it away from me in the end anyway because you determine the day of my death. So, and in the end, I have nothing, so thanks for nothing. Look at me. I mean, I've tried to gain satisfaction, Kohelet says. I'm a Davidic descendant of all things. I'm from the family that you, God, gave to Israel to be their rulers, and yet here I am, a nameless, anonymous teacher. I'm not a king. I can't change my own circumstances. And he goes on in chapter 2, verse 26, to the person who is pleasing in God's sight, God gives wisdom, knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. It's a statement of good Old Testament orthodoxy. And then he says, this too is meaningless, a pursuit of the wind. And then look at the end of the poem in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what do workers gain from all their toil? I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. Both those words, toil and burden, in those those verses, verse 9 and 10, they convey a sense of hardship and suffering. And then Kohelet headlines his poem in verse 1, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a reference to God and his control over everything that happens under the heavens. And the word that Kohelet uses for activity there indicates what someone wants, what someone wills, what they purpose to happen. He's talking about goals and aims and purposes. But whose will, whose purposes is he talking about? He's talking about the purposes under the heavens. He's talking about God's will. He's talking about how God is sovereign over human life, how God is sovereign over birth and death. He's sovereign about when you plant and when you uproot. He's sovereign over weeping and laughing. He's sovereign over scattering and gathering, love and hate, war and peace. 
He is the one who gets his way. And if you notice in the poem, as we bounce through all the little couplets, every activity that might achieve something actually gets nullified. And so in the end, Kohelet's basically saying life is this zero-sum game. You don't get anything at the end of it. There's no gain. God gets his way and from his standpoint... Everything is great. Everything is beautiful. But from a human standpoint, life can seem very random. God decides the times. We don't. Humans have practically no say. Humans are hapless and helpless. One particular commentator puts it like this. He says, The viewpoint can be illustrated with the hypothetical case of a slave working on the estate of a large landowner. The slave is not an autonomous being in his own right, but a tool, an extension of the master's will. The actions of the slave are entirely determined by the will of the master, and he works not for himself, but for another. Well might this slave ask himself, what benefit do I get from all my work? And here is Kohelet asking those questions. Kohelet, a Davidic descendant who is not in control of his circumstances, who looks at what's going on around him and in these particular couplets in his poem makes certain allusions to what the prophets had said about the planting of Israel and their uprooting from the land, about trying to rebuild and yet having that dashed to pieces. He looks at this promised restoration that God had, you know, that God had promised, and he can't see it happening. And all he can do is look around him and just see people trapped by the times that they are experiencing with such little control over what goes on. Kohelet concludes that life is a struggle and that God seems to be a very hard taskmaster. What season of life are you in? If you were to write this poem, what would be in it? A time for work and leisure? A time for happiness and depression? A time for being single? A time for being married? A time for having kids or no kids? And what about your future? A time for marriage? A time for divorce? A time for ministry? A time for no ministry? A time for friendship? A time for toxic relationship? A time for stability? A time for insecurity? We just don't know what lies ahead. Kohelet is talking about life generally... He's also talking about Israel's life and he struggles to come to grips with it all. And he says in verse 11, God has set eternity into the human heart, a sense that there is, or at least there ought to be, a reason to the, to the rhyme, a method to the madness, a purpose behind it all, that it's all somehow going somewhere and that it means something. 
But he says no one can fathom what God does from beginning to end. He can't figure it out. And he comes to the conclusion that God must do it to make people afraid of him because he wields this awesome power over absolutely everything and there is nothing anyone can do to subvert it. It's such a BC perspective. Because in the first century AD, AD, we find the purpose to which God had indeed been working towards. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. There's where we find the meaning. There's where we find the direction. There's where we find the gain. In Christ. He is the goal of it all. He is the goal of everything that God did throughout the ages of the Old Testament. In the times of the kings, in Kohelet's time, right up to the first century, and it continues to be that which God uses to determine the rest of history as well. This central, pivotal moment that we find in Christ. God desires to bring all things under Christ. Despite the randomness and the aimlessness that might characterise our lives now and perhaps even in the future, the randomness and unexpected things that occur perhaps in this stage of history, God's purpose is anchored in Christ anchored in the one who submitted himself to the will of his Father, the one who submitted himself to those who arrested him, who submitted himself to those who tried him and submitted himself to those who robbed him of his life. In Christ, at that moment on the cross, when we see someone who seems to have absolutely no control, we find the supreme purposes of God fulfilled. The will of God worked out in the helpless, seemingly helpless cry of the one who cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? As nails transfixed his limbs into that wood. Christ was anchored to that cross and we must be anchored to him. Because we can't control all the variables in our life. We can't control the variables of history. Good thing that we can't because we do such a terrible job. We know that God is supremely sovereign. And when we anchor our lives to Christ, no matter what pain and difficulty we go through, or no matter how cruisy life might be, we remain anchored to the good, loving purposes of God. One of the realities of a fallen world is that hardship and evil 
are part and parcel of living in this world. And sometimes they are just so random that they defy explanation. I hope that for you there is no hardship ahead in your life, no massive trauma, but I can't give you that guarantee. But I hope that come what may, whether it is some kind of severe trauma or whether life is fabulous and successful for you, no matter which of those you happen to experience or anything in between those two extremes, anchor your life to Christ because that is where we find the meaning of life and history. Let me finish with the more extended part of what Paul says to the Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring, all, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ.